Welcome to Unwrapped, a podcast all about chocolate. Brian and I love to talk about chocolate, and we've decided to record our weekly chats and make them available. We'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you'd like to hear about. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud, or reach out directly to us on social media, myself at Chocolate Garage and Brian at Abandoned Coffee. Thank you for listening. So we finally have got to the place where we are managing to interview folks. And there's been a bit of a hiatus and very irregular production of our podcast lately. Right, Brian? <laughs> um, I'm sorry. And there's no, I mean, you know what? Brian just had a, a third child. Well, I think his wife did. But um, and now that the baby is out, it's everybody's responsibility. So um, Brian is juggling a lot. And uh, it's the holiday season, which is very busy for Christmas for, for chocolate. So there's lots of reasons, but also, obviously, since this podcast that we started was all about us just getting on the phone for an hour with, you know, very little preparation and just talking about whatever was on our minds in chocolate, it gets more complicated when you have to bring in a third person and figure out their schedules. And it turns out folks in cacao and chocolate sometimes move around quite a bit and aren't necessarily on the same time zones or with good access to Internet. So that's been a really interesting challenge. But here we are, and this is episode 21, and I'm just so delighted to have Christy Leslie on the phone with us. Hi, Christy. Hi. It's great to be here. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Um, we're going to see how this sound works out for a three-way call, but we have Christy Leslie here who is a lecturer at University of Washington, Bothell. Did I say Bothell, right? Bothell, actually. Bothell. <laughs> I'm, uh, so one of the consistent things with Brian and I is we miss, we pronounce things differently, each of us. I'm pretty sure mostly I get it wrong because um, I have a weird oh, way no, of pronouncing I, things. No, we both do. It's okay. It's mutual. Oh, actually, yeah, I know what it is. In English, I get it wrong. In other languages, I get it right. And you get it wrong. Correct. That's kind of the thing. Correct. And in English and other languages, I get it wrong. So <laughs> you, you made Bothell sound more elegant, actually. Bothell. So. Bothell, yeah, it sounds less like Bothell kind of rhymes with another word that we don't always use with respect to academia, I suppose. So, yes, so you're a lecturer at University of Washington, Bethel. And um, so I have here the Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences, Global mm -hmm. Studies and African Studies. So you're looking at and you have been looking at and studying cacao and chocolate for um, since I suppose you've been teaching. Right. So I'd, I'd love to hear as a start, maybe. Um, how you came to chocolate in an academic way, um, mm. how you were drawn to it. And then and then after that, I would love to um, touch on uh, how we first met and our our sort of um, awesome evening eating chocolate in the chocolate garage till the wee hours of the morning. So let's start with the, the first, how you came yeah. to chocolate. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was a really fun night. And so I look forward to talking about um, our conversation, our early conversation also. My, my coming to chocolate academically, I guess, came from a personal place. I've always, always, always loved chocolate more than any other food or, I mean, obviously I loved my family, um, but I loved chocolate. You know, when I was little, it was really so... Um, just so important to me and I just was constantly trying to get my hands on as much chocolate as I could and so it's always been there for me just as a as a flavor and I really never ever thought about approaching it from an academic standpoint um until I was in my PhD program you know things have really changed um 
since I, you know, I started my PhD program in 2001, and that was a time when there was food studies. It was really not around. There were, you know, now there's whole programs. There's master's degrees in food studies. You know, the programs are springing up in the U.S., in Europe also. But it really wasn't um, considered a serious academic area you know, in the early 2000s, and or it was really just beginning. And so I, I never came into my PhD program thinking, oh, I'm going to study chocolate. It would have been, I, I don't think I would have been admitted to the program. It was a different landscape, you know, in, in the academy. And I think there was one book that everyone read, and it was Sweetness and Power by Sidney Mintz, which is a, you know, social, cultural, political, economic history of sugar in, in working class Britain. Um, and that was kind of all we had. And so the, my own coming to it was, it happened in a, a kind of a strange way. Uh, I, I started out studying water. And so um, I'd lived in West Africa before going into my PhD program. I wanted to return and I thought water was going to be the thing I would study. And I was looking at privatization of water utilities in uh, Senegal, actually. So um, I wanted to return to French speaking West Africa, and this felt like the, a very important issue. Um, and so I that was I had all my plans set. I was you know even to the point where my PhD examinations were set. And um, around the same time, I applied for this travel fellowship, and my university offers um, a, a fellowship for both undergrads and graduate students where you the, the goal is to just get you out of your studies and just get you out into the world. And the only thing you have to do is travel. And you're you, so you're wide open with what you can pitch. And I pitched this. <laughs> I remember just being so tired and so um, just worn down by, you know, years and years and years of academic study. And... Um, the thing I was studying felt really challenging. And I thought if I just, it was like a rainy night. I remember the dark windows, <laughs> like the computer lab where I was typing up this application and the rain splattering against them. And I'm thinking, what would I do if I could just get out of this entirely? And I thought, well, I'll travel around the world and just eat chocolate, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, I did, I, I did some research and I started my inquiry into, you know, where does this thing that I love so much, where does it come from? And then I thought I'll follow it, you know, I'll just follow the whole commodity chain. And so I <clears throat> pitched this big um, adventure really that I was going to go to cocoa farms and then go to places where, People ate chocolate in luxurious or unusual ways or historical ways, and and that was what I was going to do. And I really had no idea of getting the thing, but I got it. And so I I was then planning this big you know around the world adventure, and put my PhD program really kind of on hold. And um, then this extraordinary thing happened, which was my advisor my chair of my PhD committee, you know, obviously knew I was doing this chocolate thing. She supported my application. And, um, she, she came to me one day in, in an email and she said, you know, Christy, this, what you're doing with this chocolate adventure is actually a lot more interesting and global and, you know, um, just transnational in its kind of ideas than, than your water stuff 
you know, do you want to change? And I thought, oh my goodness gracious, like never in my whole life would I have thought like, yeah, I'll do my PhD in chocolate. Um, and so I wrote back immediately and said yes. And so, you know, what ended up happening was I changed the whole trajectory of my PhD program and I went and I did my fellowship. Like you are not supposed to do any academic anything while you were on that fellowship. So I made sure to do that. And I went away for months and just traveled around and did my, you know, had my chocolate adventures. And then I, you know, settled down to some serious um, PhD research. And so for me, it was, it was totally unplanned. You know, it was not, it was not anything I intended. It was, it was fortuitous in a million ways. And I, my gratitude for that time of my life is remains so, so strong because it changed everything, you know, it changed everything. But I think it's important for people to know that, you know, in 2001, the idea of studying this as a serious, academic object of inquiry, you know, was not on anybody's mind, really, that I knew. And now, of course, that's totally changed. You know, the landscape has totally changed. And where for many years after finishing my PhD, it felt like I was the, you know, the kind of scholar of chocolate. Now there's lots, you know, and so it's the, as a kind of academic thing that people will study, um, in a systematic way from the university location, I think it's just blossomed. And now there's all kinds of really, really cool stuff happening, which is fantastic because for years I just was in a conversation and I felt like with myself. (laughs) Now I can have (laughs) conversations with others. and It's really exciting to see the scholarship. um, Well, and it's from all different sort of disciplines. You see it now, right? I mean, we're seeing it from a purely scientific point of view, an anthropological point of view, very many disciplines are looking. And that's the beauty of chocolate, I think, is that you can approach it from any point of view and go very, very deep, even chemistry or physics. You know, you can look at, you know, just the simple thing of tempering, simple in quotes, it's not simple, of tempering chocolate and the crystal structure, you know. So there's so many ways to access chocolate. And and I think that, so one of the things I loved that you just put out there is is the the image of being in that computer lab and it's raining and you're beaten down and you're tired and you're in this sort of low place which is often when we're able to just let ourselves imagine the most outrageous things which is like oh what do I want to do I would love to just travel around and study chocolate and have a chocolate adventure and you dared to dream that and when you do like that gets you at least that thought closer to having something unfold that is maybe more in line with what really motivates you and is your passion. And, you know, it's, it, it really is this moment that I remember so clearly. And, and I think part of the reason is because it was so outrageous. And I, I actually know a little bit about the, what happened after I submitted that application, um, much, much later, you know, and, and probably, probably I shouldn't know this at all. Um, but the application (laughs) went through several rounds of review, you know, before the final interview and, you know, and then getting the thing. But in the first round, you know, there was tons of applications and, um, 
I was told that mine immediately went into the reject pile and it like it wasn't even on the table. They actually threw it on the floor um, because oh they saw chocolate in the, the application like subject line and thought, oh, you know, this is ridiculous. And it went in on onto the floor. And then they, they you know, the committee read all the other applications and hadn't found anything that they felt sparked their, you know, their interest or was motivating to them. And so they went to the reject pile and they took mine back out and thought, Oh, let's have another look at this. <laughs> when they actually read it, um, they, they thought, Oh, there's, there's something happening here. And I think, you know, when I learned that later, I thought it, it was, it was as I, as I had thought it might be, you know, it was this, this idea that you could do something, um, you know, the, the idea of that, the fellowship wasn't, not serious it was almost like go have an adventure in a serious way that you not to study but to be present in the world you know to be out there encountering people and places and experiences that were different to what we know sitting in our universities and that that now I feel like chocolate is this vehicle for it you know now that is you know especially in the craft sector chocolate has become this thing that we look to to help us get out into the world and understand difference and in 2000 whatever this was it really wasn't thought of in that way it was just a light fluffy thing I think that you know immediately went into the reject pile and so things have have really shifted. And I guess the, the other thing too, you know, when you were saying before, Sunita, about the science part, there were people working on it, right? There were people working on chocolate for decades, you know, centuries really before I started my own studies, but they were in the hard sciences, you know, they were studying the genetics, certainly in West Africa, there was, you know, there's just tons of anthropological research um, amongst cocoa farmers. You know, I mean, there were people doing all these things. There were certainly, you know, no shortage of technical guides um, to make chocolate from the manufacturing side. What what there wasn't were the things like Sweetness and Power, like Sidney Mintz's book, which were these socio-cultural and political economic really interdisciplinary works that started with the idea of chocolate as a food being important. And so there was tons of work, you know, it's not like I stepped into a vacuum, you know, there was lots right. and lots and lots there to read and learn and study. Um, what I didn't find were, you know, this thing that looked at chocolate as having its own identity and that identity having all these different facets to it, you know, political side and economic side, a cultural side, but also this idea of movement, you know, that it starts on the farm and then ends up in a factory and those identities move through that, you know, with it and change along the way, which is what right. I ended up doing in my dissertation. So I'm curious to back up a little bit because, you know, as a child, it sounds like you really loved chocolate and you initially probably loved it just for the deliciousness and the sweet and all of that. But at some point, as you were pursuing chocolate, you must have started to learn about what did it look like, where it started, and how did you get awareness or understand more about some of the sort of darker sides of cacao and chocolate and how how was that experience for you mm, yeah that's a great question when I when I did my fun travel my fun slash serious travel fellowship um you know the, my first stop was Hawaii and 
um, that was the first place I saw a cocoa tree. And, you know, as you know, it's not, um, you know, the experience there was not the same as the experience I had in other parts of the world. Um, I think, you know, on, in Hawaii, it was was kind of like a vacation. I mean, it doesn't mean that cocoa farming isn't really, really hard there. It is. Um, but I didn't get this sense of kind of large-scale struggle um, that I encountered much later when I was doing my, my actual doctoral fieldwork. And I think um, it probably, you know, it probably wasn't until... I got back to West Africa, um, and I had lived in West Africa before. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time there um, in rural areas. Um, I lived in a rural area. I was a teacher of English uh, in a really tiny village in Benin. Um, I knew about the material deprivation that exists in um, this part of the world. I hadn't yet made the association of that kind of material poverty with cocoa because I hadn't done any work in that sector yet. And so I think it was when I got to my um, my actual PhD field work, which I did a lot of in Ghana, um, and was out, you know, staying in the rural areas that were cocoa areas that I started to get a sense of it. I mean, when I had lived in Benin, I had you know, my own little house and I, you know, rode my bicycle to school. And I mean, there was sort of infrastructure that even though everything was really poor and, and it was hot and it was challenging, you know, and I got sick all the time, there was still this kind of infrastructure around me that I understood and that supported me in lots of ways. And then when I got to the cocoa regions of Ghana, when I got to these rural areas where the only economy is a cocoa economy where that is everyone's livelihood and and I think it was then that I realized that this thing is um it's it's just not all joy you know and and it's not um the lightness and the fun and the the interest and the enthusiasm that I'd had for chocolate my whole entire life was not matched by the, the just the daily intensity of challenge, you know, and, and it's like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll just, so every day if you're, you know, in, on a cocoa farm in, in West Africa, you wake up and it's, it's like a million degrees. It's so hot. It's so sweaty. You know, it's like chocolate. I mean, cocoa is a, a like a lowland, like tropical, humid. It, like that's the environment it likes. Um, it's extremely physically like punishing environment. Um, getting up every day and going out into that and having no respite, like just no respite. It's not like you come home and there you're in a beautiful air conditioned, you know, home where you can like go get your cool glass of water from the fridge like I just did here you know sitting in my mother's house on Long Island you know there like that just did not that was not an option and so I think day after day after day after day of experiencing these um pretty basic needs challenges 
is really where I entered into like what you you described as the dark side because to me that's that's the dark side of it is like just the um the physical discomfort the knowledge that there's no end to it you know like you don't you don't get to escape into comfort you just live in this very very challenging environment so I kind of want to jump in and ask you to describe that a little better because you're talking about not better, but more more um, on the human level because you're talking about weather and temperature and you allude to the fact that, you know, you can't, there's no AC, you're not coming home and mm. chilling with a cold glass of water. So can you describe that further and also what you said in terms of like, what are people getting paid? What can they do with the money that they're getting? And um, when you say there's no way out, like there's no escape, um, mm. I'd love you to touch on that a little more because it sounds like there's no way to build something where you can save and create something more for yourself. It's sort of just getting by. Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I think there is, um, gosh, there's a few different things going through my mind right now. I'm just kind of selecting which one to start with. But one of them is I, I think there's this romanticism surrounding uh, cocoa farming in certain aspects of the industry in the present moment. You know, there, there's, and, and that could even be on the package of a chocolate bar, right? Like I, I just packed up my 15 year plus collection of chocolate bar wrappers in my process of moving um, and relocating and was really spent some time looking at these packages. And, you know, so many of them, bring forth this idea, this imagery of um, cocoa as, as this exotic, romantic kind of environment. And Lush farmland full of beautiful waterfalls and canopies of trees. <laughs> colorful, right? Like beautiful. That Maybe there's like a bird flying, you know, like uh, exactly as you described, Brian, but and, and with color and and like if there's a waterfall, it means you're going to go swimming and and you know, then sit around a fire maybe in the evening and, and recount your day. And that happens, but the fire is like, there's one kerosene lantern that's like issuing this like choking black smoke. And, and like, that's what you, that's the end of your day. <laughs> it's not like you've had a refreshing dip and, and, um, and then like grilled some burgers, you know, it's, it's just the romanticism I did not find. Um, and, so I guess the thing that I think I understood in, in like a, a visceral way almost was that when I, nowadays I'll write so much about like the political economy of this thing and talk about cocoa farmers living on the margins and how those margins are so small, like right up until you reach like the top levels of this industry, you know, you've got to really be dealing with like thousands of containers of cocoa um, and like millions of chocolate bars before you start to see any real like material advantages accrue to you, you know, before there's even like profit that we would consider to be like, like meaningful. Um, most of the rest of the commodity chain, like people just, it's like, t it's pennies, you know, it's just the, the tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of money. And the effort that goes into making those small amounts of money is enormous. And I don't live like that. You know, I'm like for, I've been a university professor for so long. You know, it's, it's not like we're in the 
like top 1% of, you know, salaries, but I, you know, there's, there's comforts and there's regularity to my pay. And there's like things that I just, cocoa farmers just do not have, like they just don't have it. And so you're, you're in an environment where you look around and everyone's, you know, house is made of mud and, maybe it has some straw roof or a thatch and you know if the weather goes wrong even your house may not be a viable structure right and and to live in that kind of state of extreme poverty which not every farmer does but many do um I just don't think it's it's even comprehensible unless you're you're there, right? And spending time there or, or have had some kind of experience to that is similar, right? Um, just in terms of its material deprivation. And so, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll give you an example, like the, you know, there was a period of time where I was staying in Ghana's Western region and, um, I was staying in the midwife's, the, there was a midwife in the village and, she had she was traveling and so that her house was offered to me as uh, accommodation and so I stayed in the midwife's house for some time um you know and there was this was before cell phones you know this, I mean I had a cell phone but it was not like great so you know there I was completely cut off um from from really anything but my immediate community. Um, I woke up every day to, you know, there was a, a, a barrel of water in the courtyard, which itself was a luxury. And that was my shower. You know, I dipped a bowl into the barrel and scooped out some water to kind of rinse off. And, and the barrel became increasingly like, like the concentration of bugs that had drowned in the bottle, you know, in the barrel, like became higher as the days went on, you know. Um, and I mean, in the night, there was, you know, just a tremendous amount of like insect life and, and maybe even small rodents like running around and, um, of course, total darkness, you know, no electricity in the house and people really banging on the door um, quite regularly at all hours of the day and night like looking for the midwife because someone was giving birth somewhere and I couldn't help them, obviously. Um, and just this kind of everyday, um, I don't know, discomfort, Um I just think it's lost in the stories that we tell. And and to me, I know a lot of the kind of the dark side, you know, of of the industry is really focused on other things. Like it's focused on labor abuses, it's focused on children, you know, in unfree labor, it's focused on um, the share of like retail price that farmers get. Um, I address those things in my work, of course, but for me, like when I think of that, like if I, if I think about something like the dark side, I think of that, I think of the, the, just the everyday uncomfortableness of life, you know, where everything that flies through the air that lands on you is, you know, could have sleeping sickness or malaria or yellow fever or, you know, like some other dreadful disease that, you know, nobody wants. And I mean, so that's what I think of. You know, and, and I don't think that that's necessarily a story that gets told regularly. You know, just daily life is hard. I think that <clears throat> sort of describing those 
for me at least, I mean, this is maybe my preference given my background, but, you know, the numbers and like how much people get paid per day and what the poverty level is, like, I think that it's so far from our realities, as you point mm. out, um, the, the, what that looks like in terms of daily living, in terms of the lack of comfort, in terms of risk and disease and no food security or like, you know, little bits of food here and there and and just no change in sight, right? Like just sort mm. of being in the moment. You're forced into the moment because there is no possibility to plan or to to count on anything in the future. I think those mm. kinds of stories are actually so much more powerful and and can resonate, um, you know, with folks because it matches, they can, you know, imagine another human being who would have the desires they would have and imagine how different their lives are. Mm. Um, I think those are so much more compelling. And I, you know, partly what we're doing with our films is trying to, uh, you know, the whole happy chocolate thing and what we try to focus on and get people thinking about positive alternatives in some ways is the way for us to eventually show what the contrast is, you know, like when we showcase amazing operations in Nicaragua and how empowering it is for locals to do value add in country, you know, we really want to show people that there are positive alternatives because when we emphasize too much, whatever that means, um, when we, you know, tell the stories of what the reality is for a lot of cocoa farmers in the world, you know, it's very hard to keep people open to that and engaging with it because, you know, what can they do, right? And it, it's very quickly depressing and it just it's it closes people off because they feel powerless to create change. And so um, it's it's an interesting I mean, just from my point of view, in terms of the work I do of trying to educate people and my desire for people to understand what it looks like, get a sense yeah. of of what cocoa farmers lives are like. It's a difficult dance to keep people, especially in California. Maybe it's worse here just because it's like it's always sunny. So everything's always great. Um, and we, you know, don't really. I think it's probably prevalent across the country, but it seems like it might be a little more emphasized here. So it's a di it's a difficult dance to to sort of engage people, not have them just get depressed and turn off and and bury things and be in denial. I'm surprised. So I love that you describe that, and I I hope you know. So I'll just jump ahead a little bit. Like you're going to be relocating to Ghana, and I am definitely coming to visit you, and I want to um, do a happy chocolate documentary. Because the goal has always been, you know, create some content around, you know, easier places to start looking at with really mm -hmm. inspiring um, projects and then also show like why this is important and how different it is in other parts of the world. And the beautiful thing is that there I already see through, you know, Instagram and various posts that there is bean to bar happening in Ghana and Ivory Coast as well. There are inspiring projects happening there as well. But um, so, you know, it'll be possible for us to show that. But I really want to show the contrast and really have folks see, like, what does commodity cacao look like in, mm -hmm. in West Africa? Um, because the hope is that when we get that, you know, you painted a beautiful picture just with words. And then the power of video and images mm. is also... Um, you know, in some ways, even in, I don't know if it's more powerful, but <clears throat> I think it can really move people. And so I guess I'm not going anywhere with a question, but one of the things that struck me about your whole story is how late it was in your academic career, which speaks to how untransparent and how not mainstream it has been for so long to mm. even know what the life of a cocoa farmer is like. Mm. 
You were doing yeah, a PhD I, when you kind of came across this because you were in Africa, you were in Ghana and, you know, that's, it's kind of, I'm very surprised. I would have thought somehow there would have been more information out there that you would have accessed or that would have come to you. So, well, there was, I mean, so much of the education that happens today, so much of the information that's accessible to consumers is through the craft segment today, you know, and that just mm-hmm. it didn't exist when I started, you know, I, it was like the, the, okay, Scharfenberger was around, um, but there was maybe five, six people, you know, doing the kind of craft work like Steve DeFries and Mott Green. And I just didn't have occasion to come to cross paths with those people. You know, I didn't, I didn't, why would I, you know? And and, um, even as a chocolate, a passionate chocolate consumer, um, there was no outlet, you know, there were no retail spaces, there were no festivals like there that I knew of anyway, to to come across those people. And so, you know, my, what I knew was through like the candy aisle, you know, there was, there was no place where I, as just an everyday consumer of chocolate, um, could begin to learn and now there is so much right and so but you know 20 years ago there there was nothing 15 years ago there was very little so Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the the reasons but then there's also you know you said you you know you you said that what I'm what I'm looking at in West Africa is commodity and that is another huge divide, I think, in this industry because, you know, I, I, I'm not a lone voice in the wilderness, you know, because there's like Gary Guitard and John Kehoe. I mean, there's people who've been really focused on West Africa for you know, longer than me and, you know, who, who, who bring it into conversations and, and even use the beans. But, you know, certainly there's not so many of us who spend time in West Africa who are, you know, in what I, what is really the heart of this industry. And so I think that the drawing that distinction between commodity and the more specialty varieties of beans that get so much more attention and with attention resources. Um, And again, I don't think these are transformative resources. It's not like everyone who is working in the specialty sector on the, you know, origin side has suddenly got a house and, you know, a car and like, I mean, it's not like a transformation in that way, but there is definitely resources being dedicated that are not dedicated in the commodity segment. And so what I'm describing is um, just a, a part of the industry that's the largest part, but is also in a lot of ways the least addressed especially in the segment that you know we we all are are maybe most familiar with you know in the craft and specialty so I think that's you know and and also like Africa is it's it's hard to get to from the states you know no one goes there on vacation there's no like immediate like connection there's there's just very little that you know kind of brings people into that space physically and so again it it just I do feel like it gets lost you know it just gets it gets a little lost well and you pointed out you came to the chocolate garage a couple years ago and gave a talk to um, our part of our community talking about the kind of um, images and the kind of ideas that we have when we hear about Africa it's, um, you know, it's poverty or famine. And by the way, I love that you 
use the term material deprivation. It's such a mm. great word that is loaded in a different way. It's like actually loaded in maybe the right ways over poverty. Um, but you, you know, you made the point that we have a certain set of images that come into our mind when we think of Africa, and they're all kind of catastrophic and awful and suffering and nothing, you know, like just lack of things. Um, and you have, you were pointing out just the beautiful, rich traditions and culture and energy and life. And I think that that really plays into it as well. And it's easy in the craft segment. This is something you brought up for us to just, and this is something that you totally schooled me on and I am forever grateful and I'm still learning um, that night in the chocolate garage when I was like, you know, this is the deal. We're all about happy chocolate. We don't carry West African stuff like boycott. You know, we make sure it's not in anything that we carry. And you were like, hello, <laughs> you know, that there, you know, there's got to be a way where we can do something productive and and really challenged a lot of my assumptions. Um, mm. I would love mm. to sort of touch on that a little bit if you if you would. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I was actually just just thinking as you're as you're speaking was that you know what I what I haven't done in this conversation is is just bring in the other element of daily life and like the kind of everyday existence that is positive. You know, I've described all this discomfort and and it's it's so real. You know, and I will not minimize it. It's like I like when you're sitting around with like cocoa farmers in West Africa. Like I'm not kidding. Like it's so it's totally normal to have like someone be like like smacking your shoulder because a huge fly has landed on it and they're like oh that's the one that has like the sleeping sickness you know I mean it's just normal <laughs> be bombarded with like just dangers in every minute but then there's also this like one of the things I was actually rereading some of my field notes and and journals from uh, from early 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 cocoa field work in in Ghana and I came across some journaling that I'd done that was about how when I was in the bush and and working every day on the farms and um, in the warehouses and things, that in the evenings I came back to wherever I was staying and I was totally clear in my head. I had no like fuzziness in my brain. There was no stress. You know, there was there was no what am I like, oh I didn't send that email or I didn't, you know, <laughs> I I better I better go to the store and get that thing, you know, that thing that I wanted. Like there was just none of it. And so I don't want to like there's what there is is people coming together, like literally sitting around a kerosene lantern and chatting and talking and being a community and neighbors visiting each other and, you know, people helping each other out, whether that was with productive activity or just social activity. So, I mean, I feel that there's not like, it's not like my experiences there are just uniformly punishing, you know, there, there, there's so much positivity and there's so much just texture of life and quality of life that, that is positive and, and it's a wonderful thing. So I think there's that too. And I don't do a good enough job of telling that story. Like I focus on the discomfort because I'm trying to get this point across, you know, about what daily life is like for, um, you know, that part of the industry. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's beautiful stuff too. And in my experience, you know, there's the 
all the poverty I described, like, and, and all of those deprivations um, are real. But there is also, it's, it's an honest living, you know, like people are just working every day, like doing their, their daily activities. People are good. They're, you know, interested in success. They're like looking after their families. They're looking after their friends, you know, the the story that gets told about West Africa is just so often one of like horror and 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 slavery and abuses and it really doesn't um you know it just masks the fact that I mean by and large what I've encountered is just a very kind of hard-working population of people who are doing their best to get by with a very very meager income and so yeah, I think it is important to to kind of know that too, you know, to know that it's not all bad. There are joys, there are everyday pleasures, and that most of the people are just doing their best, you know, just like we are, right? We all just get up every day and do our best to do our work. And that's what the cocoa farmers that I've met are doing too. Brian, I wanted to check in with you and see if... Um you know, this is a departure from our normal conversation, but, you know, we've definitely alluded to this and you know that this is something that um, I am like, that, that is kind of my focus or my desire to like bring more light to this. I'm wondering what's coming up for you um, in terms of like, is this surprising or, or just any, anything in terms of all of Christie's descriptions and um, specifically West Africa, which we don't talk about. No, it's, it's not surprising. Right. So I've got I've got several things and I'll run through them because I kind of have them listed out just kind of overview and then we can visit any of those things. So yeah. the first of which, um, especially since we are talking about um, the specialty sector and the commodity sector uh, and uh, Sunita, this is something that you and I talk about. Uh, I don't want to say, well, I guess I should say often is then how. How do we take this information and bring it back to what most of, I would say probably most of our listeners, myself mm. too, it, it, the consumption side of it. So if we're not going, if we're not active, or if we're just accumulating information, knowledge, we're understanding this, we are still consumers of chocolate. So how, how do we take this information in consideration to consuming or enjoying chocolate. Does that mean that chocolate that comes from West Africa or anywhere? I mean, it, it, I, I know that we're specifically talking about West Africa, but anywhere. How do we then enjoy chocolate consciously if it doesn't meet our standards? And most specifically, I guess I would should say, if it doesn't exactly meet happy chocolate standards or something, right? Because mm. that, that's still what we do with it is we consume it. So there's there's that. There's the question, uh, or the the I know that Bona has um, you had mentioned it on one of your stories recently, Sunita, about the Cote d'Ivoire uh, mm-hmm. bar that that you have, uh, and and so it just has me thinking. Okay, in Christy, in your time, have we seen? And I know you were mentioning being in Ghana, most of it, but are we seeing practices getting better? Are we seeing them improve? If we're seeing uh, a bar that's 
I mean, I don't see much information about this bar, so I don't know if it's supposedly specialty sector versus a commodity sector. Again, I'll come back. We can come back to this stuff. Um, and you're and talking then, about Chocolat, Chocolat Bonin, um, the, the Côte d'Ivoire bar, right? That's what you're referring to. Correct. Like seeing seeing correct. an actual single origin, like Theo did that once upon a time. And yeah, Bonin as well, did. But it's very yeah. rare. Yeah. Right. Go and on, then, it, but it, so again, yeah, these are just all things on my mind. The other is is thinking about, because I think about these sort of things when it comes to coffee farming as well. Are we seeing, mm. or have you seen in your time, farmers of which were cacao producers switching to a different crop because it's not because it's too hard it's because it's not making um it's not sustainable it's not making a living living for them and for their family um and then the last thing that's on my mind is just when you had mentioned you know being in hawaii felt a little bit more like a vacation compared to being in west africa um it's i think about that sometimes when it comes to coffee because um and this, this exact same point can be made about chocolate. I'm just, I'm going to talk about it in terms of coffee because it makes sense to me that way. It's easy for me in a consistency or a grading scale in terms of quality to see regions like Sumatra or uh, Papua New Guinea or Brazil even as being inferior because their elevation is lower so it doesn't have as much complexity in the flavors or there aren't as much resources. Maybe they can't use water to wash all the coffee because it's a valuable resource where they are. And so thinking in terms of flavor, thinking in in terms of what we taste, it's easy to have a, 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 you think of things in terms of enjoyment. You think of it in terms of those immediates and not as much in how difficult it might be at origin to get something that has those flavor characteristics or that, quality that's there or it's harder for you to understand if a region is making improvements year over year if you're only thinking about it in terms of what you receive taste-wise and not necessarily about what is native to the terrar to the region um and everything that goes in play at that more at origin so that's those are a lot of things that are kind of on my mind Mm -hmm. in relation to to hearing you talk yeah those are great questions um and the the thing that I'm thinking of the most is that, um, like, when you talk about change, like, have things changed or improved? You know, the the shortest answer is no, but the the other answer that I want to, <laughs> but I'll do my best to put into words is that you know our measures of improvement or or change or progress, um, you know, coming from the consumer side, um, maybe particularly within the craft or specialty sector, although I'm not entirely sure about that, um, you know, are just, are not the measures that I think farming community or even a nation state that is dependent on cocoa like Ghana or Ivory Coast is, um, I don't think they're the measures that they would use. And so I think mm-hmm. it's, I'll, I'll say no, there, if, if, if by improvement or change, you know, is it the case that we can now say, oh, there's far fewer, you know, child instances of child labor or, you know, far you know, more schools in an area that's predominantly cocoa farming and they're all staffed with teachers and, you know, kids aren't working on the farm. I mean, then then shortly, no, you know, like there's there that's it's the same. And 
And it's very, very, very difficult for me to imagine um, ever being able to give a yes answer to that because the material constraints when your country exports an ag- a primary agricultural good um, are so it's just so confining. You know, it's like we live in industrialized societies where we, I mean, until like, I guess now we have a corporate tax base that is funded, um, you know, development of roads and hospitals and like airports. And I mean, just that's, that's how industrialism improves our lives, you know, is, is, if we minus out like the pollution parts, you know, it's actually given us infrastructure and um, a tax base with which to like create a welfare state that makes our lives have all of the like enjoyable comforts and things that if you're an agricultural economy, you, they're just never going to happen. And so there's no scenario that I can imagine where we look at the cocoa sector or even like parts of it and say, yes, you, you know, this whole cocoa region is, is now like kind of a joyful one to buy from because everyone there has material improvements to their lives. Like it's, it's just economically not, it's not possible. Um, so when I think about what would a farmer count as an improvement. And again, like I am an American woman who has spent a lot of time in these regions, but I like, I can never pretend to know what a cocoa farmer would think or feel, but I'll make it an educated guess um, based on what farmers have told me. And that's like what, when I say to a farmer, what would, what would help you? It's like, well, grow more cocoa, you know, irrespective of like variety or you know flavor like that's the last thing that you know I've never heard a farmer say to me like oh I want to make like a criollo tree you know like they that's just not like it's like I want more pods you know so that I can get them to market and and it's not even necessarily a better price it's just it's like volumes it's it's yields um frequently frequently farmers express to me their desire for spraying and so in Ghana for example there's um, a national spraying program that is instituted more or less robustly depending on the administration in power and in different areas of the country you know um, kind of depending on where resources are sent to but like spraying is the most immediate impact that farmers understand as improving their, their yields, you know, like, cause it, it makes the cocoa more productive. Um, and by spraying, I mean spraying pesticides and fungicides. And, and so, you know, like these are not like, I, I offer these examples because I think the, like they really show very starkly how like priorities on this end, um, like find me the specialty chocolate maker who's gonna say like yeah let's go spray pesticides and like that's a measure of in like improvement in farmers' lives like never ever right and so I but farmers say it to me all the time you know and so I think it's it's a matter of for me in improvement or progress or um 
kind of industry shift, revolution, right? If I'm going to use the word in its its strongest sense, its truest sense, would be for both of those sets of priorities to somehow merge or um, understand each other or move closer together. Because I think that there there is just so much distance. Like, and and I think it's not just economic distance it's cultural distance it's like what are your priorities because what are your options in life and if your options in life are um farm cocoa for you know generations to come then those are going to be your priorities and for that to be part of an understanding in you know this side of the industry for me would represent some real change because it's not healthy (laughs) to spray, you know, like it's like environmentally degrading, like it's not like necessarily a good thing. And so how do we get these two sides of the conversation to first even recognize that each other exists and then share what can actually improve people's lives at both ends. Um, So I know I'm talking these super abstract and like very kind of meta the like terms and and for me you know and I fully fully recognize this is my privilege as a scholar to say these things and not have to necessarily provide um practical solutions because that's not my training (laughs) my 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 training is like meta critique (laughs) and so um that so and I and I want to just recognize that so I I I think I love um, how you make an educated guess based on your research and what you've heard from folks. And mm-hmm. I, I, with the with the risk of it seeming disrespectful, and I'm open mm-hmm. to this being disrespectful, but it, I, I, in my heart, don't think it is. Um, how can anyone make a suggestion of what they want when they're locked in a system? And I think this applies to us here as well. When you're locked in a system of like, constraints and like this is what's possible and you can't think beyond you know this how do you have any other answer than grow more cocoa because grow more cocoa is more money that's what that is right and so Mm -hmm. then the the current system right now it's all about volume there is no quality and i'm not saying that you know happy chocolate is the solution and quality is how everyone's going to be lifted out of poverty like no um, I get that it's far more complicated than that, but I feel mm. like there can't be another answer from a cocoa farmer. And I'm not at all um, saying that cocoa farmers are uneducated and don't have a sense. I think that oftentimes folks with the fewest resources can be the most mm. creative because because of necessity, right? But mm. I feel like we're stuck in this system where we accept all of these sorts of constraints and scale and efficiency and all that kind of stuff and so the cocoa farmer when you say grow more cocoa have more pods what Mm -hmm. i hear the cocoa farmer saying is more money because then i can sell those pods and more money is a different thing and has potentially different answers like if our system punished um on pesticides and cared that there was chemicals in cocoa then mm-hmm. the farmer would not be looking at pesticides. The farmer would, or how to buy them and put them and apply them to get more cocoa. Like, mm-hmm. that's the thing is that we're so stuck in what it is that we push for with our system that we don't even begin to look at at, at these other options, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the, so like to make a like super gross generalization, like agriculturalists, especially in the commodity sector, are conservative 
as a group, right? And that is a generalization. That does not mean every single person. But in you know, if you're a farmer, especially for you know an export good, you tend to be conservative. Like if someone comes mm-hmm. in with an idea, even like so, and like pruning is or or, or kind of extreme pruning where you're chopping off limbs and things and you know for regenerative purposes is like the classic example I think because no it's it's healthy and it's good it will mean more productive trees but maybe several years down the road and I mean no farmer ever wants to do that and so you know what one of the kind of places that I've or, or things that I've noticed that's been happening um, and gosh, it's like a, it's like many threads kind of coming together in this and, and I'll try to ex- express them. But one of the things I've noticed is that when, when young people get involved in farming in a way that, br- that allows them to bring in, um, kind of healthier, healthier environmental alternative weight approaches um, then there's some real potential, right? And and this isn't this is not an abstract, you know. Like the, I was doing some research in um, Ghana in well, it was a few years ago. Now it was three or four years ago, and um, I had a team of of researchers from the university tech, uh, uh, the Kwame Nkrumah um, Institute of uh, University of Science and Technology in Kumasi. And so most of the the team were students there. They were graduate students, you know, in master's degree programs and um, doing surveys, you know, um, among the farmers. And a few of them, like these students, their dream for their own livelihood was to farm differently, you know, was to take organic approaches was to return or you know return to their own like rural homes if that's where they had grown up or establish farms in you know if they hadn't grown up in a rural region you know and to kind of bring these interesting um ideas about healthier practices for people for environment for trees for consumers um that i think the kind of older farmer might not necessarily be super enthusiastic about because that's a kind of a natural progression of time. (laughs) When you get older, you're not as willing maybe to take risks. It's just the same as like we all approach our 401k plans, right? You know, like we're less (laughs) risk tolerant as, and like, that's what a farm is, you know, for a farmer, it's like their 401k plan. And so, you know, where, where I have seen younger people um, wanting to, practice farming in a different way I have seen tremendous like reason for hope and um again this is not large scale it's small scale but that doesn't mean it can't become larger right it might not ever take over the industry um but it could certainly grow and I think there are I mean there's just an enormous potential in so many different parts of the the value chain you know and so like I'm so I'm moving to Ghana um, and my partner's already there and one of the things I was going to miss most I've been living in London for 
almost two years now and, and we have a beautiful like organic produce <laughs> like the like I can pick my organic tomatoes and my and like they they sort of arrive on my doorstep and it's so lovely and, and I was really thinking gosh how are we going to do that in Ghana and my partner just you know sent me a message the other day saying that he'd found an a, a organic produce delivery service <laughs> and they, like one of the delivery spots is right down the block from our apartment in Accra you know and so I was just like delighted on so many levels like a personal level because now I can you know get my nice produce which is such a like a complete like first world ridiculous priority um I was happy about it but it also means that if it's happening at scale right it is happening at scale in Ghana like for this to be you know if for that this exists means that a lot of people want it and that the business is viable right and so if it's happening for lettuce and tomatoes then it can happen for cocoa and I think the young people it kind of goes back to this thing like um what's what's a cool industry to work in right and until cocoa is cool no young people are going to want to go into it right like until it's like you're in you're you're going to get respect and um, have what you consider to be a fulfilling life, you know, by working in this sector, like people aren't going to be attracted to it. So it's the same here, right? You know, like now being a farmer and farming, whether it's urban farming, you know, keeping your bees or, you know, whatever it is people do or like actually farming for a living. I mean, now it's cool, right? And, and when it's cool in... West Africa, which I think it, it's becoming now, then we will start to see some some necessary change that moves us away from this older, more conservative model into something that's a, more open to innovation um, and possibilities. You know what what comes up for me when you say that is, you know, I was just in India. I'm going to be bringing folks to India in February. And one of the movements I see there, um, just a particular um, tree-to-bar operation, so folks who are growing cacao and coconut, in, by, by the way, and um, also doing finished product, right? So they're, they mm. are exporting some of the cacao. Um, this is Karthi and Manoj's uh, farm in Polachi in Tamil Nadu um, in southern India. And so they are exporting some cacao to the craft chocolate segment, but they're also doing finished value add um, for both chef's chocolate as well as the individual bars, you know, craft chocolate in India. Um, and what's interesting is that all of that craft chocolate is currently being sold in India, right? Huge market, huge middle class of folks who are interested in in quality and in reducing sugar intake and in eating darker chocolates, all of that, right? And so what's fascinating is, and what you just mentioned about um, in Ghana, the idea that you're going to get these local produce, organic produce deliveries um, when, when you move there, um, and that that's available and desired and there's a market for it. So what about, like, that could potentially shift things where, these countries that have traditionally existed in the tropics to serve the north in the industrialized world, serve is a nice word, to be extracted from and exploited um, for our benefit and with all of the riches ending up sort of in the industrialized world, captured there um, through value add, I imagine mostly. Um, what what happens when there's a shift where like, you know, uh, Soklet in South India 
they're not selling to us. They're not, Mm -hmm. it's not that they're not interested, but they're starting their local market. And if I were them, like, why would you export if you can fully sell everything locally, if it's easier, if you can get a good price, if all those things are met? And so what happens in Ghana if there's more and more demand for those kinds of things, organic produce? If, you know, do cocoa farmers eventually, if it's possible where they're growing their cocoa, switch over to also growing organic produce because there's actually a market for it and they can sell their stuff locally and they could just get off cacao. I mean, Mm -hmm. then they're independent and able to, you know, diversify at least. And if, and if things continue the way they are, where folks are totally squeezed at the beginning of the supply chain, then cacao is less and less desirable. And if there's ways to sort of enter into these other markets for local consumption and it's at least as good or better and I have no idea what an eggplant costs in Ghana like I'm really just it's the idea the sort of the movement of 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 changing countries and changing identities around um value add and finishing products in country and I'm seeing that in India just with like a glimpse of a few food products there yeah I mean to me like what you just described it makes me feel like so um it's like this vision that I would just see as like a real, a real revolution if we could make that shift because, you know, I mean, what Coco did in West Africa, along with, you know, cotton and coffee um, and, and prior to that natural rubber and um, is, is it just decimated the, the food production landscape, you know? And I mean, the arable land there, you know, until the colonial period was, and, and maybe it just prior to the colonial period, was devoted to crops that people used, you know, and like the 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 large scale shift to export crops that nobody used, you know, was was a real revolution in the worst possible way, right? It it just was a complete transformation. Um, getting that back, right? Like getting people back to producing things that are um, locally desired and used and have local value addition potential would be the, you know, we could describe that as the best possible scenario. What that would impact is the big, you know, is, is commodity cocoa, right? If, and, and so I think, again, it's worth drawing a distinction here. And, and, you know, I feel like one of the things that I've, I've been thinking a lot about recently is I don't it's like commodity. When I think about commodity, I, I tend to think about like Mars and Nestle and, and Hershey and the huge companies. Um, what I don't, and it's brands that I think about, like what I don't think about when I'm trying to force myself to think about more and more recently is like, like chocolate croissant you know, brownie, like the, the, like actually like chocolate ice cream, like where the, all the commodity cocoa really goes, you know, into these, like this, we live in this chocolate world. Like I can get chocolate, anything, like anything. Right. And so (laughs) that would have to diminish. Right. And like, not just the big brands, like not just the big five companies, they would, they would have to become smaller scale, but the prevalence, like ubiquitousness of chocolate in, like North America and Europe would have to become smaller, right? Because that is where commodity cocoa ends up. And so that would be sad, but we could live, you know, we would live through it and just have a plain croissant instead of a chocolate one. And so, you know, this is not like, we're not talking depriving ourselves. It, and 
it's not to say that the specialty cocoa couldn't continue to thrive and we could have delicious chocolate bars. That would be possible. And again, like I'm talking pie in the sky here, right? Like this is not probably going to happen in my lifetime or maybe ever, but I think that's where it would end up. You know, if we really did retransform, if there was a way to, you know, turn the land back to places, you know, to, to crops that people wanted, um, and could use for themselves, you know, then, then we'd be looking at a really different chocolate landscape and that would probably be a good thing. Right. And it doesn't mean that specialty has to go away. It doesn't mean that like genuine, like productive, delicious cocoa that is, you know, supported and well-resourced, um, would have to disappear. And if anything, it might make that even more, um, kind of, feasible. But that's, I think, where, you know, ultimately, if we take this to the end of the road, that's, that's what, that's the kind of scenario we'd be looking at. And to be honest, you know, like the, the demand is there locally. Like even when I was doing my PhD field work, it feels like a million years ago now in the cities, you know, when I interviewed people in, in cities who had some disposable income, they, you know, or desire for organic, fresh, produce that they could eat was one of the top concerns, you know, and people would say to me, yeah, the farmers, you know, they throw a bunch of chemicals on the stuff that they send to the cities and they keep the good quality organic produce for themselves <laughs> because they don't want to eat this crap either. Right. And so, you know, the it's, it's there, you know, the market outlet is there. It's just, um, it hasn't been resourced. It hasn't been supported. It hasn't been cultivated in the way that it has been over the past, you know, 10, 20 years in North America and Europe, for sure. It's so interesting, um, Brian. I have something coming up for me, but I wanted to um, check on Brian if you, if you, what your thoughts were as we were talking about this or if I should go ahead and ask my, or express my nope, thought. continue on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Brian, I feel like I your questions were so good and I don't know if I answered them. I don't know. I kind of tend to go off into a big abstract, so I don't No, it's not fine. Sure they're, I, not even I... they're not even necessarily questions as much as just things that, that kind of go on in my head. And I, we, I mean, we did answer, uh, to an extent, some of those, they're just, they're just kind of thoughts I have while I, while I listen and let you talk. Mm-hmm. People hear me talking mm-hmm. up. So, <laughs> um, what came up, like it's, it's so fascinating and maybe you can touch on this, the idea that, and I, I don't mean this in a way of like remove cocoa from West Africa. It never belonged there anyways and was just this cash crop to be exported. But, you know, when you think about the origins of cacao and where it started and where it was, you know, domesticated and cultivated to, to great success, whatever that means, you know, like great production of um, of different varieties that were being hybridized for particular features, you know, either, um, you know, increasing the abromine content or having lower bitterness levels, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, there was a part of the world that used to do this a lot and produce a lot of cacao. And it's from its origins in the Amazon basin and then in Central America, right? And so when you were talking about this shift, you know, if we see this shift where folks um, are starting in country to... I feel like a bit of a little revolutionary here saying like break free, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. like start serving themselves. Right. And being able to like actually go back to growing food in the olden way, in in the old way, olden days. That's what I'm mixing up here Um, and do that kind of thing. Then do we eventually over time, hopefully in not too much of a of a 
disruptive way, in a negative disruptive way, do we start to see a shift as to where cacao grows? Does it go back to growing where it originally grew? Do those sort of traditions and that kind of you know, fertile ground and traditional grounds for, for growing cacao, does that come back? I mean, we already see that, you know, Nicaragua is coming up in terms of growing more interesting cacao and not all of it is, is premium specialty. It's a lot of it is, is, um, commodity. And, um, what about Brazil? You know, Brazil has been offline for such a long time because of the diseases that hit and yet it's starting to come up and it's coming up in a different way. We see all these specialty makers doing finished product in Brazil, um, serving the local market, you know, like what does it, what could it look like over time where, there's a return to the, you know, maybe some of those countries that used to grow cacao, but in a way that's more serving themselves, kind of like what I described in India, you know, serving the local market whose tastes are changing. Um, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's something that came it, up as you were describing that. It, it is. It's, I mean, it's, it's such a, it, it's, it's very tempting, I think, for, you know, for me to think about it that way, because I also have experienced that, like, just the real lack of, um, chocolate culture in West Africa, the, the, and the disconnect between this product that's an export commodity, you know, almost a hundred percent, and and the sort of the kind of lack of you know understanding or or interest um, in the later value added stages of the thing, you know, from a cultural perspective. And in fact, that's the 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 next project that I'm I'm going to work on. Uh, in Ghana, and I, I guess the thing that kind of tempers my my excitement about thinking if we could go, you know, if we could just bring cocoa back to the place where it has its longest indigenous history and where it is really valued in so many different ways and where it is not just an export crop and where people get it and they, you know, the the there's cultural value and there's social value and economic value all wrapped up together, you know, in a way that's not present in West Africa. The thing that tempers my my hope around that is that mm. I, you know, I think one of the reasons where why cocoa ended up where it is, you know, one the big one was colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. But it's tenacious because of relative um, like material poverty and like right. relative lack of economic opportunities that, you know, one of the things that I actually emphasize in um, my book that's coming out soon and, and it felt really good to, for me to write this is that where we think of cocoa and this whole like conversation, all the things I've just said kind of emphasized how cocoa is, um, hard and it's challenging and it doesn't make people very much money and it's like this incredibly uncomfortable life um, is that that's my point of view you know for the people who live in Mali you know or Burkina Faso in the Sahelian regions that are completely arid there is no agriculture there is just no opportunity there's just nothing Um, for them cocoa is riches you know like cocoa is hope cocoa is the way to get ahead in life and you will leave everything behind for the prospect of entering into an industry that I have just spent an hour describing as like incredibly challenging. And, you know, if, if you're like just faced with a hundred percent lack of opportunity in Burkina Faso, you're going to look at an entirely different way. Right. And so what, what, what I, what has happened and what I imagine like continuing to happen is there's always going to be a poorer place in the world. You know, there's always like right. 
there and so you know right now there's what I'm seeing is this shift to Central Africa. You know, Congo is getting all this attention. Like Uganda has got this extremely, incredibly competitive market, even though it's tiny, tiny, tiny volumes, um, and it's mostly unfermented. But you know, you're you're looking at places where like cocoa is, is just is just shifting. And even if Ghana, for example, or Ivory Coast were to you know set, if everyone there was like suddenly farming their like organic tomatoes then we would see cocoa go somewhere else and it might be to central and south america or it could be to central africa right and so it's so that's that's what i'm i'm not saying it's impossible i'm saying it would there would be other factors that would poverty pressures you know will always exist and they can be a like a pull factor for cocoa right people i mean can be drawn to it and that I I just feel like that is is a point I maybe should have made earlier is that this like this scenario of struggle um, is for many people a scenario of hope. Right, right, and the you know the scenario we were just depicting or that I was like you know dreaming about for a moment is a radically different model. I mean, things would not cost the same. Things would be completely different. And so the companies as we know them now who are the ones who, you know, um, purvey, I can't think of the right word, um, the most, you know, move the most cacao into chocolate, tea, candy, um, couldn't exist anymore in the form that they exist. And so that's a crazy radical thing because we're talking about most of the market, right? That's like 99% or 98% of like, all chocolate is or cocoa is grow is moving in that way. And so it's kind of an outrageous, wildly disconnected from our current reality kind of depiction. And your point of um, cocoa representing hope. I mean, it's it's so crazy that, of course, initially it was used as a currency, but it still is in many ways. Right. You talk about those, you know, those farmers in um uh, in Burkina Faso and various places where it's like so arid and desperate and like that's their hope that equals money literally it is a currency for them mm-hmm. so yeah yeah I guess. <laughs> it, yeah I'm sorry I interrupted you Come on. no I mean I was kind of just sort of thinking that as usual and this is like sometimes what happens in our documentaries as well like Cuba was definitely like this it felt like just big fat gray area like there aren't any easy answers and you know if people are growing more produce and in um, Ghana you're able to get an organic food box that's great if there's local muesli and um, granola and chocolate being distributed in India being grown in India and consumed in India that's kind of exciting like there's these little blips and movements and um Seeing that is inspiring and hopeful, and yet there isn't a clear path or how things unfold um, to see more of that and to see that serve folks in their own country more. Um, And I guess that's the exciting part of getting to see how that unfolds and shining a light on it and opening up new ideas and exposing them to, you know, to the world I, I no I mean absolutely you know and it and it, it it goes back to what you were saying before about like the written text and film and I and I think that there are these powerful ways to share the stories and I think film is one of them and I you know I think 
this this is one of them maybe even more so than text and it's like a heart wrench for me to say that because I spend like most of my life writing texts <laughs> like I, I recognize that like not everyone kicks back with them uh, in the same way as I do but you know I think that that is how it begins you know it's like look at what has happened in in North America where you know I mean 20 years ago maybe 30 years ago like the kind of local healthy organic seasonal produce was you know I mean we were still buying like spray onion in a can or whatever you know <laughs> like now we've got this you know this incredible movement and I think it's by letting people know that it's happening and inspiring and sparking enthusiasm and ideas and you know someone sitting in a place where it's not happening and saying hey I could do that too, you know, and, and people literally changing their lives to pursue a dream that they didn't even know existed. And so I think that it's absolutely right. And it's, if in the documentaries, you're pointing to these places that are like highly localized, I mean, that doesn't make them not powerful, you know, that, that might make them more powerful, right? Because one of the things that I think holds us back, you know, the conservatism that, you know, I talked about among kind of the older agriculturalists is just not necessarily having access to inspirational, new, innovative ways of doing things, right? And then once you start to learn about them, you know, that's how things spread. And that is a huge reason for hope, right? This is actually happening. Like, this stuff is happening. It's not... It's not a fantasy that people are growing organic crops in West Africa for local consumption. It's real. And right. the more people know about that in Ghana and outside of it, like the more opportunities we have for others to replicate that in their own way. And so right. we're all just working against this huge system, right? You know, this is just all of us struggling against like the man, you know, whoever he is or wherever, like, that entity exists. But how else do you do it? And thank goodness we live in, a like, a society where we can share these ideas. And we have so many more tools these days to be able to share those ideas in very simple, very easy-to-spread ways, you know, through, like, that is the positive of social media is to be able to get those stories out. And... I, I want to I want to challenge listeners or just invite actually not challenge it seems very aggressive I want to invite listeners to think about um, you know there's been a lot of books that have come out on chocolate actually just this fall and I think that they're um, wonderful books and I think you should check them out and read them um, there's making chocolate by dandelion there's um, the uh, bean to bar chocolate I think is I can't remember the exact type type a title by Megan Giller. And yeah, Sean and, and Lauren Askinosi. Oh um, yes, that's right. That's is, right. Yeah. 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 Looking at they, chocolate as, and how to build a business in a way that is, you know, about um, serving others and a sort of a social entrepreneurship look. And then I also want to, I want to, you know, invite you to also pick up Christie's book, because I think this is the book that is, you know, it doesn't, I'm assuming it's not going to have a lot of beautiful pictures of chocolate and not a lot of that kind of stuff. But I think that, you know, we, I don't know, we, I think I would like to, I was going to say we owe it to, but forget about that. Like, 
it, I think it, I invite people to take a little look at something, um, challenge yourselves to like read something that I assume is relatively academic, but still sort of accessible to non-academics, but that looks at the political, social, cultural, all of cacao and what it looks like so that we have a sense, more of a sense of this food that we love that grows so, so far away from where we live and in such different conditions. And so I invite people to, um, it's an easy to remember title. It's called Coco. <laughs> and it um, is available for pre-order already, right, Christy? And yes. Um, yes, for local folks, we're going to have Christy here in March. Um, I think it's Friday, March 9th, I believe, off the top of mm -hmm. my head, um, to uh, speak about her book and sign copies and all of that. So um, I just invite you all to check that book out and um, give it a read, because I think these are, like you sort of intimated at the beginning, and you're brilliant um professor or whoever that woman was who said hey you know what i think this is more interesting than water i think this is transnational i think this is something you know thank goodness for her and i i think yes. that um that has definitely been my whole sort of pull to chocolate is that you can use cacao and chocolate as a vehicle for understanding for for awakening empathy for for connecting people from their favorite food to so many much larger international issues that that can be the entryway into those things. So I am so delighted, Christy, that you are our first guest here in our next series of 10 episodes where we're going to be interviewing folks. And just as background, um, you know, I've decided to try to bring folks on who have been really influential and inspirational to me and have, have contributed significant sort of sharings from their experience or technical knowledge, all sort of all sorts of angles um, that have helped me understand chocolate better. And so I, I can't think of a better person who um, who sort of kicked off my beginning of a better understanding of how to deal with this West Africa cocoa issue. You know, how do we look at it in an honest way? And so I am delighted that this started in the Chocolate Garage years and years ago with lots of nibbles and talking until the wee hours of the morning and is continuing now on this podcast that um, that Brian and I are putting together. So thank you, Christy, for being with us today. It, it, uh, it's me who must thank you, honestly. I am so honored and I am I am just so moved by that because it's, I spend a lot of time alone at my desk. <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, it, to hear you say those words just is so incredibly meaningful to me and I'm, I'm, I thank you so much and I thank you for having me on um, because talking about these things you know, with you and as, as we, we started, as you said, many years ago is, is really, um, it's, it's feels really good to me, you know, to have conversations with people because that's what it's, what it's actually really about, right? It's about, um, connecting with people, you know, as I can write as many words as I want, but at the end of the day, if we're not connecting with each other, then, you know, maybe we're, we're not doing very much. So I'm, I'm just so appreciative. And thank you very much for having me on. It's a, it's a great honor to be the first guest on your next set of 10. As a final wrap up, I just want to, again, just express such gratitude and, and thank you, Christy, for making the time and bringing your 
decades of work into um, into our our conversation. And I also want to thank Brian. Um, and I have said this before, but really, um, other than these calls that we organize and that we I chat into my garage band track and then I send it to Brian and then he does all the magic and matches up all the tracks um, and cleans them up and and posts them. So again, thank you so much, Brian, for all the behind the scenes work that doesn't necessarily show um, this podcast is truly a, um, a combination of both of our sort of work and and hearts and and interests. And so thank you everybody so much for listening. We're really excited about this next 10 series um, of interviews with folks. And we're not really sure at all about the frequency in which they're going to be produced and be put out there. But thank you so much for, um, for listening. And we hope to bring you more wonderful conversations like this one with Christy Leslie very soon.